happy Mother's Day. We're so glad that you are here today. If you are a lady, if you are a female, would you mind raising your hand? Just any, doesn't matter if you're a mom or not. Just, uh, I just wanted to say, as the pastor of this church, thank you so much for all of the work that you do. The things that we see and the things that we don't see. The ladies of this house are so important to us. I was reading the scripture this week. There are just some phenomenal women that the Bible lifts up. I mean, right away in the Old Testament, you have Sarah, who is the mother of Israel. A few books later in the book of Judges, you have Deborah, who is not like the helper to the ruler, but is the ruler of Israel herself. You get into the Gospels, and we always hear about the 12 apostles, and they happen to all be men. But if you read the Gospels really closely, there are always women in the background, also disciples of Jesus. And in fact, the scripture says that they are the ones who support Jesus during his his ministry. So I, I guess the men were lazy. They were following, but not working. It's the ladies who are funding Jesus's ministry. And then who are the eyewitnesses of the resurrection? It's not the men. You know where the men were? The men were locked away, afraid. It's the ladies who go to see the empty tomb, the first people to see Jesus alive. You get into the New Testament, Romans chapter 16. Paul is commending this woman named Phoebe to the church of Rome, saying, listen, to her, respect her. She is a servant and minister of the church. You, you, you see ladies like Lydia and Nympha, they, they were hosting the church of God in their homes. And this was not just like, let me serve the food. This is like leadership in the early church. Uh, Priscilla, uh, who along with her husband Aquila were partners with Paul and actually mentored a young man named Apollos who was a great preacher but had really no foundation. And so ladies, just in line with the scripture, I just want to say thank you so much. You are valuable and a church is strongest when the men are at full strength and the women are at full strength as well. And, And we would love nothing more than for this house to be big enough for you to find your calling and what God has made you great at and to see you put it in play for the kingdom of God. So we're recognizing moms today, but all of the ladies are with us today. So in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Being a parent is hard. Amen? Let me say it a little bit more clearly. Being a parent is terrifying. If you're a parent and you're, you're not terrified, it's because your children are infants. Is the only reason that you are not scared. Being a parent is very, very, very hard because you know that there's failure all along the way. Jackson, our eight-year-old, his birthday was in February, and he wanted us to come and have lunch with him at his school. This is something that you can do regularly, and and we've already done that a handful of times. But normally, I would go up and have lunch, or Amanda would go up. But he wanted us both together uh, around his birthday, and he made a request of what kind of fast food, healthy fast food, of course. We got the apples, but uh, uh, what kind he wanted with the toy. And and so we were excited, and we show up at his school. We got the little bag of fast food with the toy inside, and we go to check in there at the front desk because they're very security conscious. And, and we tell them our names, and I hand her my license, and she, she goes, Curtis Jones. Uh, you can tell, like, my, she's thought about me recently, but doesn't know exactly why. And so she's running it through the computer and all that. And she goes, oh, somebody just called to see if you were here already. I'm like, man, how famous are we that people are just wondering 
when we show up. This is beautiful. It was kind of puzzling. And so we're having a good conversation with her. She's printing out the stickers and we're putting them on. And, and I'm not in any kind of rush. We're there a little bit early. But she seems to be shooing us on, like wondering with her facial expressions, like what on earth we are still doing there. And, and I, we start realizing that uh, we thought lunch started at 11.40, but it had actually started at 11.20. And, and so our sweet little birthday boy had been thinking for 20 minutes that his parents totally let him down. And so we ran down the hallway, which is clearly against the school rules, and <laughs> got into the, the lunchroom. And he saw us, and it was, his face was that, I'm so happy that you are here. I'm so mad at you, you know. <laughs> And I'm devastated because I'm thinking this is what he will remember. Years later when he's sitting in the counselor's office, (laughs) which we wholly suggest, uh, you know, to everyone, he's going to remember that time that for 20 minutes he thought his parents just totally bailed on him on his birthday. So I'm trying to spin it. I'm like, look at your toy and isn't it amazing? And I, I upsized it, you know, I mean, it's awesome and it just trying to undo what had happened, knowing that there's no way and that he is old enough to remember that feeling of us letting him down forever. That's hard as a parent. It's hard to know from the very beginning. You're going to fail. That you're not going to get it right. And so we're going to talk about parenting today. Now, if you're not married or you're married, but you don't have kids, that you don't need to worry that this is somehow a waste of 30 minutes for you. Because Paul, who is going to write this letter that we're going to read today, he was not married, nor did he have any children. And yet he did have offspring. He had sons in the faith. He had children in the faith. All of us should be actively trying to pass down something to the next generation. So in some way, this is very specific to parents or those who will be parents. In another way, it's applicable today for all of us. But this is not a message about parenting. Here's what's right. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should not do for a couple of reasons. Number one, I have no idea if I'm a good parent. My children are five and eight. Um, I have only found that those who are the most self-righteous about parenting are those whose children are still in elementary school. (laughs) A certain amount of humility gets introduced around the sixth grade and then even more around age 16. And then those who have adult children are just the coolest people on planet Earth. It's only those who are in elementary school, those parents who think they've got it all figured out. And so my children are so very young, I honestly have no idea if I'm doing a good job. But the second reason this is not a how-to parenting message, here's what you should do, here's what you should not do, is because I think you already know everything you should do. We're not going to talk about what you should do as a parent. We're going to talk about who you should be. And who you should be is you should be loved. But that love that you so desperately want to transmit to your children cannot come from you if you are insecure about being loved yourself. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I am reminded... The Apostle Paul writes, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. 
For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See, the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter to Timothy because Timothy is, is lacking in courage. It's not that he's not a courageous person. He's just having one of these moments where he's a little bit afraid. And so he's writing this letter to encourage him. And, and he says, I, I remember the faith of your grandma, Lois. And I remember the faith of your mother, Eunice. That faith that dwelt in them now dwells in you. Now, this is the only thing that we know about Lois and Eunice. We don't get any other parts of their story uh, except for Timothy's father was Greek. And we don't know his story, but we can infer that he was not a believer. That it was really Lois and Eunice that passed down this faith to Timothy. Now, Timothy had a, a very impressive spiritual resume. Lois and Eunice had done a good job. Whatever they did... They did a good job because when you piece together all the things mentioned in the scripture about Timothy, it says that Timothy, even at a very young age, was well respected by the believers in his hometown. That His church, they looked at him, even though he was very young, and said, God has his hand on this young man. This young man is a man of great faith, of great power, of great potential. Timothy was known as Paul's true son of the faith. That's how the apostle Paul referred to him. Paul did not have children of his own, but he looked to Timothy as one that he was passing down, what had been passed down to him. Timothy was sent by Paul to churches when Paul himself could not go. When the persecution was too thick and Paul couldn't make it there, he'd send Timothy as his representative. When uh, Paul needed to go one direction, but a church needed ministry in another direction, he sent Timothy. He believed that sending Timothy was almost as good as he being there himself. In fact, Timothy is mentioned as a co-author of six of Paul's letters. From Paul and Timothy. From Paul and Silas and Timothy. Six of the New Testament books were co-authored, at least by Timothy. He, He was an impressive young man. And when Paul is dying, which you can read about later in 2 Timothy, when he knows he's getting ready to breathe some of his very last breaths on earth, who does he call for? Who does he want to come to him but Timothy? So, so he had a, a, an inc- impressive spiritual resume. Now, if you're a parent, you know the pressure of trying to hand your children a resume. Not a work resume, but just a resume to let people know that your kids are worthy of being impressed, that, that your kids are remarkable because our greatest fear as parents is what? That people would not notice your children or that people would look at your children or your future children and go, eh, right? Isn't that the most terrifying thing in the world? So we feel this pressure from a very young age to build up a resume for our kids. And, and you know, you've written a resume before. Your resume has to have like a thing, a thing that separates you from all the other resumes that have been sent in. So maybe it's where you went to school. That's your thing, that, that name of that school, it just opens doors for you. Or maybe it's been your work experience or some f- previous titles that you've had. You want your resume to not just be full, but it's gotta have a thing, it's gotta have an anchor. And we feel this as parents. What's my kid's thing? So some people are like, my kid's thing is going to be athletics. And they're going to be amazing at it. And they're not just going to be amazing, but they're going to be the most amazing out of all the people on their team. When Jackson was in the first grade, he had a kid in his class who was training for a triathlon. Hello? 
I'm just happy if he gets outside of my house and runs or swims or rides his bike. But to do all three, and listen, not to do all three, but to train for a triathlon. Like what first grader does that? But there are first graders in Houston, Texas who are right now training for triathlons. Why? You, you think that kid woke up in the morning and he was like, mom, I was watching cartoons. And, and really what I would like to do with my life is I would like to be a triathlete. No, if I can judge from a distance, which clearly I can, just like you, I think that the parents wanted to give their kid a thing so that they could have an impressive resume. Or you want your kid to to not just be smart, but to be like really smart. That's their thing. Or, Or maybe your kid is gifted in arts. They're... Uh, an amazing ballerina or an artist or whatever, we so feel this pressure to give our kids a thing so that they can have a resume. But Timothy's resume wasn't just one that prepared him for adulthood. It's one that was connected to eternity. See, most of us are trying to build a resume for our children. Not that they're building it themselves. We're trying to build it for them. But it won't even last past our lifetime and definitely not theirs. It's a resume filled with earthly things, things that don't matter. But what if we reversed it? What if we just said as parents, as future parents, as aunts and uncles, the most important thing is that my children would have a resume like Timothy, that they would love Jesus with their heart, their mind, their soul, and all their strength, that they would serve the church, that they would love the church, that that is the first priority. And then if we want to put athletics on top of that, then praise God for that. And if God has made your child very, very smart, and it goes on top of that spiritual resume, then that's amazing. If your child does have a thing, that's great. But don't let your child's thing be anything less than Jesus. But you don't get any credit for your child's resume being church stuff. Which is why none of us feel any pressure to pad their resume with such things. If Jackson goes into school tomorrow and they're like, what'd you do this weekend? And He's like, well, my dad preached and my mom was right there with them and we lead a church and we're all in it as a family. You know what his classmates do? They move on to the next conversation. But if he walks in and was like, yeah, I was playing football and then we went and did this and then I was cramming for the SAT. I'm only eight, but I'm ready for it. (laughs) And people stop and they take notice. So we feel all this urgency as parents to give our children a thing. And we're giving them the wrong thing. It's not because we're bad people. It's not because we're bad parents. It's just because that's the pressure that we feel at our back. But Lois and Eunice, they somehow did something. We don't know what it was. To prepare Timothy spiritually. In fact, it wasn't even what they did. It was who they were. Look at verse five. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. See, the best thing that you can do for your children is to have sincere faith. 
And this totally sets me free this morning because it doesn't say perfect faith. If you're an aunt or an uncle, the best thing that you can do for your nephews and nieces is not perfect faith, but just sincere faith. Sincere faith means honest faith. Some of us, we're trying to fake it for our children. Because you can fake faith, can't you? It's easy. Just come to church. It's brilliant. Nobody questions why you're here. You know, people, you know, are welcoming you. Hey, welcome to church. So glad you're here. Do you mean this? I mean, welcome. that would be the worst church in the world, you know? So it's easy to fake. It's easy to sing the songs. I mean, it's easy to bring a Bible to church with you. It's easy to have religious vocabulary. It's easy to fake. But what you cannot fake is sincere faith. And listen, your nieces and nephews and your sons and daughters, they can smell the difference. We will never know if this is real or this is just religious motion. But your children will know the difference. But there's no pressure on us today. There's no pressure on us to have perfect faith. Just sincere faith. Just honest faith. Listen, if if you're a parent of a teenager and they're in that state, which most teenagers are, where you're trying to hand them this faith in Jesus and they're not really sure if they're going to take it or at least take it in the way that you want. The best thing that you can do for them is to sit down, take them out to dinner and just say, I want you to know that I am not perfect. This Jesus stuff, I don't get it right all the time, but I want you to know I mean it. I mean it, and you're going to see me fail more than any other person on the planet. But I want you to know what's real in me, and I'm, I'm doing my best not to be perfect for you, but just to be real in front of you. You'd be amazed what that will do for your relationship. It's not perfect faith, just sincere faith. And that sincere faith, it, look what it does. It dwells. In them, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. To dwell means to take up permanent residence. You know the difference between renting a home and owning a home? There's a big difference, isn't there? When you rent, like Amanda and I rented our first one-bedroom apartment and then we upgraded to a two-bedroom townhouse. When we upgraded to a bigger uh, townhome, we didn't upgrade in like income. And so we couldn't afford furniture for all the rooms. You feeling me on this? And so we had a bedroom set from our first apartment and the living room stuff. We were good on that. But then there was the second bedroom. And, uh, and so we had a choice. We can like buy stuff we can't afford, or we can just rock it empty. And so we, we did. It became Amanda's getting ready room, right? Her makeup room and her hair drying room, which I was really proud of because even like the wealthiest people on the planet don't have like makeup rooms, you know? <laughs> she had a whole room to herself just to get ready. Big mirror in there it was fantastic. But then after that townhome, we bought a home. It was our first home. And so we went from one bedroom apartment to two bedroom townhouse, now to three, very, very small, 1100 square foot, uh, three bedroom house. But we furnished all those rooms. You know why? Because it was our home, because we owned it. And when you own something, you move in deeply. When you rent something, you just move in lightly. This sincere faith is faith that has moved in deeply to your lives. It's not just surface. It's not just religious vocabulary. It's not just religious action. It moves in deeply, like getting ready to watch TV. My whole family knows that even though I'm not perfect, my faith in Jesus affects this. Getting ready to go to work. My children know, my wife knows, my nephews and nieces know that 
My faith in Jesus, it affects my job. That's a faith that has moved in deeply. That's a faith that dwells. Then look at verse 6. Here's the scary part, or the scariest part. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here's what we see. Lois and Eunice, they had sincere faith. And that sincere faith was passed down to Timothy. But it's Timothy's job to fan it into flame. He's the one who's responsible. Listen, some of you, especially some of you younger folks, your parents have been praying for you and praying for you. And they lived it. And they weren't perfect, but they did their best. It's your responsibility to fan it into flame. And this is terrifying as a parent because what it means is it means no matter how hard I try, I cannot share with my children's faith. I can't pass down enough fences to keep them godly. At the end of the day, it's their decision. And as a parent, just like you, that is striving for perfection, which all of us are in our parenting. It's terrifying to release control to our children. But the reality is, is we'll never get it perfect. Lois and Eunice didn't get it perfect and neither will you. A couple months ago, Jackson came home with this collection of poems that he had written, which was very exciting for us. Now, what you need to know about Jackson, I've mentioned this to you before, he has zero imagination. So if he's not going to be an engineer, I have no idea what he's going to do for a living. You know, just zero imagination from his earliest days, like just no pretending whatsoever. He loved cars, like Hot Wheel cars, but he wouldn't like do a story with like, oh, I'm, this one's going faster than this one. No, he would just carry them around in his hands. Like that's what he, that was play is just him holding them, which is very odd and weird. And he always had them and just zero imagination. So he comes home with this collection of poems and we know, we know Jackson's deal. He's a nonfiction writer, not a fiction writer. But we open up the first page and we're like, oh man, because the title of the first poem is Goblin Shark. Now I'm totally pumped because goblins, not real, sharks real, that's fine. But he jammed them together into goblin shark. He drew a picture here. We're thrilled. We're like rejoicing that there was like this little seed of imagination in him that had come out. Now it didn't last long because the the very next page is a poem called My Pants. (laughs) Goblin shark starts this way. Feel the rhythm of this. White, blue, and gray, deep in the ocean. None of the words rhyme, by the way. White, blue, and gray. And then my pants, blue, white, and gray. <laughs> As you read it, you, uh, you can see the creativity draining out of him because <laughs> the next poem is called My Coat. <laughs> it's black and red, though. It's, it's black and red. He, he writes a real sweet one about a friend of his in here. Uh, there's a goblin shark. Part two also makes it. And then the one on the very last page says, uh, Dad. And I was like, I got a lump in my throat as soon as I saw the title of it. And then it says, Bald. <laughs> Hold on. Right there. Bald. That's for real. (laughs) 
But at least we had Goblin Shark, man. Until about two weeks ago, a man is reading the Chronicle or some other news-related website online, and she clicks on a link that says, Goblin Shark found in the Gulf of Mexico. A goblin shark is real. It's this creepy shark that has two mouths. It opens its one mouth, and then a whole nother mouth comes out, which is kind of cool. But he didn't even make that up. This is a poem book of nonfiction. Because you can't control your kids. You can't. You want to. You want to get in their little brain and you want to make decisions for them. You want to get into their big brain when they turn into adults and you want to make all the decisions for them. You want to, you want to make sure that they understand what you've been through. You've walked this road as a parent and now you're turning around. You're helping them, but you can't police them. And that goes against everything in us that strives for perfection. And I want to set you free today, parents. You're not perfect. And no one expects you to be. Just sincere. Just honest. I love the story of the prodigal son. And you can turn to Luke 15 if you want, but we're running out of time and so we won't today. Because there are a lot of bad dads in the Bible, a lot of them, and some real serious offenses. A lot of terrible, terrible fathers. Some good moms, a lot of terrible dads. But the dad in the story of the prodigal son, it's a story that Jesus made up, which is hard to hear as a dad that Jesus had to make up a story about a great father instead of just being to say like that guy over there he's great you know but you know you know the story the prodigal he, he says to his dad I wish you were dead you're terrible I want to get off this farm and he goes and he spends all of his inheritance on wild living just wastes it all prostitutes drinking I mean every conceivable vice this guy participated in he, he comes to his senses he realizes he wants to go home but he knows he can't go home and just, you know the story. And when he does go home, his father runs to him. His father sees him. His father embraces him, kisses him, throws a huge party for him. It's amazing. The older brother, he's disappointed because he's been faithful. And now it looks like the one who's been unfaithful is being rewarded. And he's never been rewarded like that. And the father parents him so well in the midst of his brother being celebrated. This guy, just a brilliant dad. And I I read that story and I know it's fictional, but I'm like, I want to be a dad like that. I want to be a dad with compassion. I want to be a dad who sees my kids. I want to be a dad that responds to my children where they are, not where they should be. I want to be a dad like that, but we don't get the rest of the story. We don't know what he did. We don't know what wired him up like that. And I do have an imagination. And so I start wondering, I, I wonder what kind of father the prodigal son would have been. I think he would have been a dad just like his father. Because those who have been loved lavishly know how to love lavishly. You are loved. You're not perfect, but you're loved. I've been thinking a lot about generations. I mean, it's Mother's Day. And in that scripture, for 2 Timothy, it talks about a grandparent, talks about a parent, and then it talks about the grandson. 
So I've been thinking about my family. I've told you before that I was a drummer in a band, which makes me cool. My mom was in that band, which makes me not cool. And the name of the band was the Harmonettes, which means I will never be cool, ever. We were a Southern Gospel band. We were very big and very small churches in Southwest Missouri. My mom played the piano and I played the drums. And my grandfather, he was the manager slash MC. So he would book the gigs. That's industry talk. And we would show up in these churches and we would do a concert. Notice the air quotes, a concert. And my grandfather would get up in between the songs and it was his job to segue from one song to another, which he was brilliant out because he was a great storyteller. And some of his stories were real and true, uh, but most of his stories were old stories that old preachers would tell at old revivals. You feel me on that kind of story? Like once upon a time and there was a guy one time, you know what I'm talking about? And he had his favorites. He had this little red book uh, that had typed on a typewriter, little pages that had all his stories in it. And he had his favorite. And I remember sitting on the, at the drums and he would get up the very last song, right before the very last song. And it was almost always this story because it was his favorite. And it became my favorite too. And I thought just in the spirit of generations and family, would you mind me telling it to you? It's not a story I would normally tell, but you don't really have any say, so I'm going to anyway. He, he would get up and everybody would be real still when he started the story. There were other stories, but this was the story. It was about an old pastor who was half retired. He was sitting on a train one day. He had been gone for a while. He was ready to return home. And this young man comes and sits in the seat next to him on the train. And they exchange pleasantries and how you doing and all that. But then they go about minding their own business until about three-fourths of the, the, the trip, the pastor starts noticing that this young man, he's getting real fidgety. He's getting real restless. He's, he's starting to sweat. Like he's clearly bothered by something. And so he's a pastor. And so he kind of leans into it. And he's like, are, are you Okay. The guy was like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. Young man, early 20s, I'm fine. The pastor said, listen, I, I know fine and, and you are not fine. What, what's going on? So the young man starts telling him the story, his story about how he grew up and he didn't get along with his dad very well. And, and uh, they would kind of just get into it. And mom was the peacekeeper, typical overbearing dad, lazy son, that kind of thing. And uh, that was just his childhood. And and, and one day, about two years ago, he and his dad started that escalating argument again, and uh, he'd had enough. And so he just let some things come out of his mouth that no son should ever say to their father. And he left, and he hadn't been home in two years, hadn't spoken to his parents in two years. And the week before, he sat down to write his parents a letter saying that he was sorry. He knew what he did was awful, and he felt terrible. And he wondered if it would be okay if he came home. He said, I'm getting nervous because my parents' house backs up to these railroad tracks. And I told my parents in this letter that I was gonna be on this train. And I knew I had done unspeakable things and I had said unspeakable things to my father. And I knew I might not be welcomed home. And so I said to them that if I was, if they were willing to forgive me and receive me, they could just hang a, a white strip of cloth of, of linen from one of the trees in their backyard. And I would look out the window. And if I saw that strip hanging from one of the branches, I would know that I could get off at the station and I was welcome home. 
But if I looked out the window and I didn't see anything, then I would know that I wasn't welcome and I would know that I deserved it. And he said to this pastor, we're getting real close to my parents' house and I thought I would have the courage to, to look, but I don't think that I do. Would you mind looking for me? The pastor said, of course. So they sat in silence for a few moments and then the young man said to the pastor, it's getting close up here on the left. And he buries his head in his hands. And after a very, very long minute, the pastor turns to the young man and says, I think you can look now. And the young man lifts his head and he looks out the window and hanging from every branch of every tree was white strips of linen. And there in the backyard, a mom and a dad with big white bed sheets waving him home. You want your children to know this. Whether they know algebra, whether they're the greatest athlete on planet earth, pales in comparison to them knowing that no matter what, they are always welcome in the kingdom of Jesus and at your home. You want your children to know this above all else. But they won't know unless you know first. No one, parents, future parents, aunts and uncles, is asking any kind of perfection from you. You are loved and you are accepted and you are welcome. Now tell your kids with sincere faith. Father, we thank you for love beyond our wildest imagination. Can you just settle your heart and turn your ears to the spirit of God inside of you? Let him him breathe that over you. Not do this and less of this and more of this, but you are a parent. You are a future parent. You are one in the line of generations and you are loved. Honestly and sincerely. In Jesus' name.